Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators of our live programme and the producer of this series. This episode is a first for us, an interview that is for kids as well as for adults. The historian Yuval Noah Harari introduced millions of us to the story of humankind in his wildly successful book Sapiens, and his latest, Unstoppable Us, tells the same story to younger readers. The children's author Catherine Rundell joined him on stage over the summer to preview that book, and it came out in the UK last week. Here's their conversation. Enjoy. Starting at the very beginning, can you describe for us the first ancient humans, what we think we could do and what we think we couldn't do? Hmm. The first thing to know about ancient humans is that there were many different kinds of them, which is really kind of a very striking or amazing realization because we are used to being the only humans in the world. We are used to a situation where everybody in the world, if you are in Britain or in India or in South Africa or in Australia, it's the same humans everywhere. And we take it for granted, but if you look at all the other animals, it doesn't work like that. Like you have different kinds of bears in different parts of the world. You have grizzly bears and panda bears and whatever. And you have different kinds of snakes and ants and whatever. So why do you have just one type of human everywhere? And if you go back tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, actually the world is populated by many different kinds of humans, not just our kind, but other kinds also, some big, some small, some quite different from us. And so that's one thing to, to know about the, the, the beginning, where we come from. And the other thing is that we were just wild animals. We are still animals. You know, again, this is something that most, many people find kind of difficult to grapple with. You know, animals, what are animals? They are dogs and, 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 and pigs and birds. We are something else. But we are not something else. We are also animals. We are, you know, quite special animals that can come together and sit here and listen for to one hour to one animal speaks. But we are still animals. And if you go back, and, and we think we are not animals because we build these buildings and we sit nicely in chairs and we have computers. But then you go back tens of thousands of years and there are no such buildings. And there are no supermarkets, and there are no computers. And people just live in the forest and the savanna. And as a kid, uh, you don't go to school because there are no schools. You learn how to climb trees. You learn how to look for mushrooms in the forest. You learn how to fish. This is what you do. So what do you think are, what were the first most important things that we learned? Uh, as humans, we learn an awful lot of things. Again, climbing a tree is, is difficult. I don't know how to climb trees. You know, I, I know how to write this book, but if you now give me a tree here, climb this tree and pick these fruits, I can't do that. And so how do I survive? You know, if I can't climb trees and pick fruits, then how do I get food? And the way that I get food is that I write these books. And then people buy the books and give me money, and I take this, and I give it to somebody else who knows how to climb trees and, 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 and pick fruits, and, and then I have something to eat, which is remarkable because, you know, you don't get chimpanzees doing that. You don't have any chimpanzee who survives by writing the history of chimpanzees, <laughs> and then you have other chimpanzees that give him bananas so that he can... No, only we, only we do that. And that's the most important thing we learned, is how to cooperate in very strange ways, and in also in very, very large numbers. So each of us can do something quite unique and remarkable, and still, you know, we have food, and we have clothing, and we have a house to live, because we learned how to cooperate in, in very large numbers. It is the most remarkable thing, the thing our brains can do. Of course, at one point, our brains perhaps couldn't. Our brains had to grow. 
and that's connected to fire. Yeah. Can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, so before we learn to cooperate in like really large numbers, the, the, the previous big thing that ancient humans, our ancestors, our great, great, great grandparents learned to do is, is to control fire. Mm. Which is, again, no other animal, as far as we know, can do that. Animals are afraid of fire because fire is like the most wild and ferocious thing out there. You know, if you think about, say, a lion, so if a lion eats a zebra, then the lion is satiated, the lion had enough, and he or she, they just lie down to sleep. So you don't need to be afraid of them anymore. But fire is the opposite. Fire, when fire eats a tree, it's not satiated. It's hungry for even more. It's a bigger fire. It burns more trees. It spreads around. And so lions are afraid of fire. And what's remarkable about human beings, humans learn to be friends with fire. And you know, there is a trace of that, how we did it. Like, I suppose also many people in the audience have this experience in their life that have you ever sat next to a fire? Maybe you went with, with friends to some woods or the beach and you, you, you light a fire, a campfire, and you just sit there and you watch it. And this is something that I, I like to do. And I know that many people like to do that. And what's the thing about just sitting and, and, and watching this, this fire? Because this is kind of the, the well, in a way, where it all started. That whereas all the other animals would run away, there were some humans who said, hey, this is interesting. And they just watched fire from, from a distance, because, you know, fire is, is this ferocious, wild thing. But they watched it. And as they watched it, they learned how to befriend it. Mm. What does it mean to befriend fire? Like you can take a stick and you put it from a distance in, in, in the fire and it starts burning and you take it out and you have fire on a stick. And you can hold it like the thing that everybody is afraid of, you can hold it and you can light other fires or if a lion comes, you can wave it and, and the lion runs away. So this is kind of the, the big friend that, that we made is, is, is fire. And it, I guess, transformed everything. It not just allowed us to not be eaten by lions as much, but also to cook. And yeah. cooking transformed our bodies. Absolutely. This is, again, uh, uh, in, in, originally, we, like the other animals, you eat raw food. And most food, even today, that we eat, it's hard to eat it when it's raw. Like if you go to, to the, your kitchen and you take some rice, and you try to eat it, you can't. It's, it's hard. If you try to eat, I don't know, potatoes, and you just bite a potato, it's yucky and disgusting, and, and you can't eat that. Yes, I but, feel it's important that we stress that. You, Professor Yuval Noah Harari is not suggesting, children, <laughs> that you go home and eat raw potatoes. Like, let's, let's just lay that out. Yeah, it's, this, it's yeah. actually dangerous, yes. Yes. I, I think, to try and eat yeah. raw potatoes. But then, amazingly, but. you take this disgusting, dangerous thing, and you put it in fire, and you cook it, and it's suddenly delicious and nutritious. Mm -hmm. And also it makes it, 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 it gives us more, more energy and also more time. Because, you know, you look at chimpanzees, our cousins, the chimpanzees, they spend hours and hours eating because it takes a long time to chew the food and break it down and, and then digest it. But actually, fire does it for us. It breaks down the food, so when you eat something cooked, you need to spend much less time and energy on eating. It gives you a lot of energy, and scientists believe that this is actually what enabled our brains to grow, because we have quite big brains. And you know, you have a kind of, you need to decide where the energy goes, to the stomach or to the brain. If you spend a lot of energy digesting food and chewing food, you have small brains. And then when fire does these things for us, then suddenly there is a lot more energy to divert to the brain, so the brain starts growing bigger. And, and this is the source of much of our ability to invent stuff and, and do, do new stuff. So, as you were saying, these humans who have found fire, multiple kinds of humans, and I love this idea that you discuss in your book that I think is so telling. The world might have been different 
because it might have been that we didn't end up with just the one kind of human. There were so many other kinds. Yeah. Can you, for instance, describe the humans of Flores? Yeah, for instance, uh, this is something we discovered only in the last 10 or 15 years. People didn't know it before. But there is an island, small island in Indonesia, where that humans reached this island almost a million years ago, when it wasn't an island, when there was a land bridge connecting, you could just walk to that place. And then the oceans rose, and uh, this place became disconnected from the rest of, of, of Asia. And there was a bunch of humans who got stuck on, on that small island, and also a bunch of elephants. So the same thing happened to them. They walked to the, to the island, the, the water rose, they got stuck there. And the thing with the small island is that there isn't much food. So what happened is that the biggest humans, and also the biggest elephants, they didn't have enough food, and they, they died, they, they starved. And actually, the smallest humans had the best chance of survival. We often think that the bigger you are, the more powerful you are, you, you'll survive. But in a small island, it's just the opposite. If you're small, that's uh, the smallest kid in the class, he or she are the ones who are going to survive best under these conditions. And they survived. So you had kind of the, the, the smallest people, again, having kids of their own, which were even smaller. And this happened generation after generation until the, 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 the people in Flores, the humans in Flores, they became very, very small humans. And this is not a fairy tale. Actually, the bones, the skulls of these people from hundreds of thousands of years ago, they reached like one meter height, and their head was the size of a grapefruit or something like that. But they knew how to light fire. They knew how to make tools. They were able to hunt the little elephants that roamed around the island. And um, there are stories today in that island among the, the native people mm -hmm. about these kinds of mysterious little people who live in the forest. And for many years, everybody thought this, this is just fairy tales. But again, once the, the, the archaeologists, the, 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 the scientists, discovered the remains of these small people from Flores, then people said, well, actually, maybe it's not a fairy tale. Maybe it's, again, memories from very ancient times, the same way that when you look at, at fire today and you like looking at it, it's a memory from maybe a million years ago, like in a similar way. This story is about, I think they call it the Ebogogo, which means grandma eats all, because the story is about these, these small humans, but they eat everything. So there are actually these small humans on, on Flores Island. Yeah, it is fascinating, this idea that there may have been, like you say, some memory, some form of, I mean, some form of instinct that this had once been, is an incredible thought. Yeah, I mean, they disappeared. Yes, of course. Uh, like, at least 10 or 20,000 yeah. years ago, probably because when people like us eventually got to that island, they, they took all of their food and the little people couldn't survive any longer, but may, they may have survived in the stories. Yeah, yeah. So that's one other kind of human. There are other kinds, Neanderthals. Yeah, they, they are like the favorites, right. the most famous. Right, <laughs> the ones everyone, like, you know, that you use as an insult at school. Like, <laughs> tell us about Neanderthals. Uh, Neanderthals, well, they are more or less the same size as us. They lived, uh, what, what is today like in, in, in the UK or in Europe, it wasn't populated. If you go back 100,000 years ago, there aren't people like us, uh, there are Neanderthals. And they also, they know how to light fires, they know how to make tools, but they are different from us. And they apparently had bigger brains than us. Uh, but what does it mean? It's not clear. Were they uh, able to, to, to track animals better? Did they have these amazing dreams? We don't know. But this idea that like we are the smartest humans ever, but Neanderthals may have been smarter than us on an individual level, like one-on-one. One on one. But the, th the other interesting thing about Neanderthals that they were a different type of human, but they weren't, because we are all Neanderthals to some extent. Again, this is another amazing discovery that scientists made in the last 10 or 20 years. Previously, it was thought that Neanderthals completely disappeared. 
there was a big discussion whether our great-great-grandparents, our ancestors, they, they are the ones who are responsible for the disappearance of the Neanderthals, or maybe there was another reason. But it turned out that actually, when you look inside the human body, you find traces of the Neanderthals in each and every one of us, because something like 50,000 years ago, when our ancestors, Homo sapiens, came from Africa and reached places like Europe, uh, there were some uh, mixed families. There were 50,000 years ago, there were children that they had a Homo sapiens mother, maybe, and a Neanderthal father. Which, you know, we all, the, all the talk we have today about mixed families and different kinds of families, just imagine that your parents are different animals. Different kinds of Different being. kinds yeah. of animals. And all of us are, to some extent, the outcome, the descendants of these mixed... Because, uh, almost any one of you, if, if, if they check, like if they check your DNA, you're almost certainly have some great-great-great-great-grandmother or grandfather who were Neanderthals. Which is worth remembering. When I was young at school, we used to use Neanderthal as an insult, but I guess <laughs> if you called someone that, they could say, yes, and also you. Um, <laughs> so... Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Neanderthals, and then the human we refer to as us. In fact, it would be really lovely to know from the kids in the audience, how many of you are familiar with the term homo sapien? Can you put up your hand if you've heard that term before? Oh, brilliant. We have a room of experts. Okay. Can you tell us about homo sapiens? Homo sapiens. Mm. So homo sapiens is like us. It's the name that we give our kind of human, which originally lived only in Africa, but now live everywhere in the world. People in Australia, people in Greenland, people in Brazil, they are all homo sapiens, uh, with a little bit of Neanderthal mixed in. And maybe we say something about the name. Yes. Uh, homo sapiens, what does it mean? Uh, it's, it's a name in Latin, and it's again, it's a kind of habit of scientists that whenever they give something a name, whether it's an animal, whether it's a medicine, whether it's a plant, they usually give it a name in Latin because it sounds far more important and respectable whenever you speak in Latin. Like, even if you look here <laughs> around the, the, the walls, you'll probably see all kinds of things written in Latin, which is kind of... I mean, you know, people who, uh, kids who read Harry Potter, like, all the magic words in Harry Potter, they are just ordinary words in Latin, which they sound magical because they are in Latin. So, you know, if you... When scientists talk about mouse, mice, they don't call them mice. They call them mus musculus, which sounds very important, mus musculus, but actually it means mousy mice, <laughs> mousy mouse. And uh, a cat, I think, in, in, in scientific language, it's called feliscatus, which again, feliscatus sounds very, very mm, serious. Fancy. It actually means kitty cat. <laughs> so if you're reading a book, that, uh, uh, you know, kitty cat hunts mousy mouse, that's a book for babies. <laughs> but if you read Felis Catus hunts mus musculus, hmm, that's a very Science. serious scientific statement. So also our name, Homo sapiens, it's from, from Latin. And homo simply means human. You can even hear in, in, in the word homo, human, it's, it, it, it's connected. And sapiens means wise or smart. So we gave all the other humans and animals these kind of strange names. We are, we are wise humans. Not very modest, but very wise. It's, of course, open to question, are we really that wise? <laughs> there are reasons to doubt uh, whether we are really the smartest animals around. You know, you look 
how we are treating the planet and what we are doing to the ecological system, well, maybe we are not the wisest animals around, but, but that's the name. And, and this is what it means. Homo sapiens is, is wise humans. Uh, we originally evolved. We, we, we came from Africa. And now, like all the people in the world, they are all homo sapiens. Yeah. And so we had at one point many kinds of human, and now we have just the one kind. What happened? Hmm. That's one of the biggest questions in, in history, and it's an uncomfortable question. We don't know for sure, but there is a lot of evidence pointing the finger at us. That mm. what you see is that at first you see Homo sapiens in Africa and Neanderthals in Europe and the small humans in the island of Florence and other types of humans in other parts of the world. And then you see, again, in, in, the, in, in the record, like you dig in the ground and you find bones and you see that suddenly you see evidence, bones of Homo sapiens also in Europe, also in Asia, also in Indonesia. And at around the same time, no longer any evidence for all the other humans. So one theory is that uh, our, as, as Homo sapiens spread from Africa, they were better than the other humans at hunting elephants and at climbing trees and picking apples and whatever. So we didn't leave a lot of food for the other humans and they gradually disappeared. The other theory is that it was more violent. There are actually clashes, like we have wars today between people. Then there were also violent clashes back then, for instance, between sapiens and Neanderthals, or sapiens and the small people of Flores, and that we directly killed at least some of these ancient humans. And this is kind of the, if you want to speak in kind of religious terms, the original sin of Homo sapiens, that we caused the disappearance. We killed all our relatives, all the other humans in the world. Again, we now know that also some mixing together, like with the Neanderthals, but uh, uh, it seems that there was also a lot of, of conflict back yeah. then. And, of course, so one of the things that the book brilliantly phrases, I think, is why we were able to do that and what it was in us. And you talk about it as being our superpower. Yeah. And our superpower was what? Yeah, so when people hear the word superpower, they think about they, they, they can read minds or they could be invisible or they can fly faster than, than, than a bullet. But you know that we don't have this superpower. I mean, whatever the human superpower is, it's something we all have. So it can't be any of these things. So what is it? And the answer, I mean, it's, it's made of two parts. First of all, it's what we talked about earlier. It's our ability to cooperate in very large numbers. As far as we can tell, what's happening right now couldn't have happened with Neanderthals. Like, look around. We have here like, what, 100 people, 200 people sitting together here in the, in the hall. Most of you are strangers. You don't know each other. Like you know that the two or five people you came with, like your parents or your siblings or your friends, but the people sitting on just next to you, you don't know these. These are strangers. And yet you all sit here together and you listen to us. Uh, and you're not afraid that the strangers on the other side will, I don't know, stand up and start beating you. I don't know what, what will happen. <laughs> you couldn't do this with Neanderthals or with chimpanzees. Just try to imagine. Let's imagine something together. Like we, we have exactly the same thing, but with chimpanzees. Like we are chimpanzees. We yep. came here to talk about the, the history of chimpanzees. And we invited a lot of chimpanzees from London to, to, to come to this gathering. And they come like 200 or 500 chimpanzees, what would happen? It would be complete chaos. Like jumping around and screaming and, 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 and fleeing because how can you trust one another? How can you trust somebody you never met before? And that's our superpower that we can cooperate 
with a lot of strangers. We do it every day. Again, the food we eat, most of it comes from strangers. If you think about the big things that people do, like building this amazing place, like this is not something that two people can do no. or ten people can do. Now, you know, tens of thousands of people need to cooperate to build a place like this. Not just the builders who put the stone over stone. Somebody needs to feed them. Somebody needs to provide them with the material. So how do we do it? And the answer is with stories. Mm. The way you connect a lot of strangers together so they can trust each other and they can cooperate is also what we are doing right now. We are telling stories. And the amazing thing about stories is that if a lot of people believe in the same story, they don't need to know each other personally in order to trust each other and in order to cooperate. And, you know, there are many stories that people used over time how to do it. So you have mythological stories about spirits and gods and things like that. You also have economic stories like money. We don't normally think about money as a story. I know that as a kid, I really tried to understand what is this thing money? It's so strange. It's, you know, you can't eat it, you can't drink it. It seems to be completely without any value, but everybody wants it. And everybody is doing these so many things to get it. And money is just, you know, a fairy tale for adults. That usually people say, you know, fairy tales are for kids. Adults, they believe in like serious stuff. But money is just fairy tale for, for, for adults. You have kind of the biggest storytellers in the world, and they come to all the adults and they wave this piece of paper. Or today it's not even paper, it's just something on the computer. And, you, and they say, this colorful piece of paper, it's worth like 10 bananas. And all the adults believe it for some reason. And then it works. You can have one person meeting a complete stranger in a supermarket, gives him or her this worthless piece of paper, and the other person gives them 10 bananas, which never happens with chimpanzees, which as far as we know, could not happen with Neanderthals because they didn't believe these kinds of, 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 of strange stories. And this is the, the ability to come up with these stories and to convince a lot of people to believe in them and then cooperate. This is what made us much more powerful yeah. than the Neanderthals or the chimpanzees or, or any other animal. It is amazing that there are so many stories which we have all agreed to believe. And of course, Sometimes, you know, you guys tonight could be like, well, bedtime is a construct that we've invented and therefore is not legitimate in this household. Or, though, there are larger stories. For instance, religion is a story. Mm -hmm. How is that? Do you want to tell us a brief history of religion? Oh, a brief history of religion. <laughs> you know, let's start with, you know, a big question that often is at the center of religion. What happens to people after they die? It's also, I remember as, as a kid, I was kind of fascinated by what happens to people after they die. And I would ask the grown-ups, and you get different answers from different people, but what I really got after some time is the impression nobody really knows. That the, the grown-ups don't know the answer to this question, but they are afraid to admit it. So they come up with these stories but they don't really know if it's true or not. And you know, it, it often happens when you, when you say something and you're not sure if you're, if you're correct or not, and then somebody starts questioning you, you become very angry because you're afraid that they will expose that you don't know. So instead of honestly saying, well, you know what? I'm not sure, I don't know. You start attacking the other person and you get very angry. And this is a lot of the history of religion is about that. Mm. It's about some very important questions that people come up with all kinds of answers that they don't re nobody really knows for sure, but they are afraid to admit it. So they constantly fight w with one another. But again, there is the, the, the other side of the coin is that 
if you convince enough people to believe the story, even if you're not sure of it, this is something very powerful because it can uh, uh, help everybody cooperate to build a place like this or to uh, produce food together or to build a hospital together. So it's always a kind of delicate balance that, well, you know, if, if I start asking too many difficult questions, uh, is it really good or bad? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not always clear because I want to know the truth, but uh, it could also make a lot of people upset. It could also cause a lot of people might, might lose this ability to, to cooperate together. And, and that's dangerous. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's a difficult question. It's a real question. It is. It is such a huge question. And of course, to say something is a story is not to say it's untrue. It's to say that that's a way that we have come to understand it. Mm-hmm. I find it such a fascinating thing that that is the way we are able to reach each other with these stories. Yeah, I mean, stories I are the way is... our brains take fire. Exactly. We don't know about other animals because we are not other animals. And it's hard to know how a cat or how a horse understands life. We only know ourselves. And what we know about ourselves is that we are storytelling animals. This is kind of the way that humans get the world. That, you know, it's, it's difficult. And you have today scientists that try to describe the, the world in numbers with all kinds of statistics and equations and charts. And I know that many, many people, many children, also me, I, I, couldn't get, get, I couldn't understand it. Like when physicists were describing the world to me in, in equations. We need somebody most of the time to translate that into a story. And that's a problem. Because some things in the world, they don't work like that. But... And it's one of the things, it's not easy to be a human being. I mean, I suppose all of you discovered it, however old or young you are, you discovered that it's not easy to be a human being. And, you know, we have this enormous power, but we often don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. We often don't understand the world. We don't understand our, our, our lives, and that's scary. And, you know, especially growing up, um, you don't know what you're supposed to do as a human. That, that's what makes it so hard very often to, to grow up as, as a young human. That You don't know what the destination is. But what am I supposed to be? It's a big question. Yeah, it is. We're going to go on to talk a little bit about what we know about the daily life of some of the earliest humans, about art and food, But before we do that, I'm going to pause and just see if anyone wants to ask any questions about what we've been discussing so far before we move on to the next bit of our conversation. Does anyone here have a question? Any children have any questions? There's a young woman here. Thank you. Where in the human evolution do you think humans decided that some animals were pets and others were threats? Ooh. Pets are quite new. For most of human existence, as far as we know, there were no pets. Some animals were threats, like lions. Some animals were food. Uh, But we didn't have pets. The first pets were dogs. And they came around 15,000, 20,000 years ago, which is a long time ago. And the remarkable thing about dogs, they adopted us. We did not adopt them. It was their idea, as far as we can tell. You know, previously people thought, no, 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 we we are so smart and powerful, we adopted them, but no. It seems that, again, tens of thousands of years ago, some wolves, originally dogs were wolves, some wolves noticed that it's a good idea to follow these large apes, humans, around, because these humans, they are very good at hunting, and they can hunt a huge mammoth, which we wolves can't, and they can't eat all the mammoth. So uh, uh, if we just follow them, they'll hunt the mammoth, they'll eat, they'll go away, and then we can eat the rest. So they started following humans around, and they started kind of understanding humans better and better. And then they started helping humans 
in all kinds of ways because they, were, they, they got some food for you, from the humans so they, they helped them. For instance, they helped them find the mammoth because wolves have a much better sense of smell than humans. I can't smell a mammoth a kilometer away or even a hundred meters away, but wolves can. So the wolves started pointing humans, that's, that's the direction, now go and hunt them. And then we have something to eat. And also they began warning their humans, again, we think about dogs as ours, but they thought about that the particular human group as, as their humans. And if, for instance, in the middle of the night, some lion came or some big saber-toothed cat was approaching to, to, to eat the humans, so the wolves would raise the alarm and would bark. So the humans would wake up and defend themselves. And gradually, the humans and the wolves, they, they, they came more and more together. And the wolves, some wolves moved from the forest to sit also around the campfire. And they became dogs, which still help us in all kinds of ways. If a cat is coming, they'll bark. So we know the cat will not eat us. <laughs> uh, the cats also came to us. We did not domesticate them. This, is, this happened later when humans began to have agriculture and to have these big granaries full of wheat or barley or things like that. So they had problem with mice. And then the cats came to hunt the mice and the humans were happy about it because less mice, more wheat to eat. So this is how cats uh, 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 came. And um, yeah, so there are much more to, to, to tell, but on kind of the, the, the most interesting thing to know is that they adopted us, not we adopted them. We'll take one more question and then we'll go back to talking about daily life. Um, do you think, in your opinion, it would be possible if, like, I don't know, in the zoos, could the evolution happen again, like the orangutans, mm. like chimpanzees, could they turn into humans? Oh. Uh, <laughs> Good question. The thing about evolution, it takes a long, long time. If we give them like a million years, then yes, it can happen. But uh, not in a hundred years, not in 200 years. So uh, we, don't, we don't need to be kind of afraid that the chimpanzees in the zoos will very quickly become these super intelligent chimps and, and, and take over the world. Uh, we have much more <laughs> immediate uh, dangers threatening us. Um, unfortunately, all the other animals in the world, almost all the other animals, they now depend on us. They are now threatened by what we do. So the future of almost all the other animals is now in our hands. So I want to talk a little bit about art, art. and about cave painting, mm -hmm. and about specifically two caves, uh, both of which are extraordinary and both of which have brilliant stories of how they were discovered. So the Lascaux cave and the Altamira cave, can mm -hmm. you tell us how we found them, how we found what was in them? Yeah, so much of what we know about the lives of ancient humans tens of thousands of years ago, one of the best sources of evidence is art, paintings, sculptures made 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 years ago, which you can actually go and see today. Pictures made by people tens of thousands of years ago. And we find it in different places in the world. Again, the most ancient art, it comes from Africa. In recent years, we find a lot of very important art from like 40,000 years ago from Indonesia. But two of the most famous, they come from France and Spain. So in France, there is a cave called Lascaux that was discovered by teenagers. That is a group of, of teenagers, they went in the wood and they saw a hole and they were curious what's inside there. And they crawled into the hole. What the parents probably were very upset about what they did, but they kind of crawled into the hole and made one of the most important scientific discoveries of the 20th century. These huge, huge caves with amazing paintings, of mammoth and bison and deer and horse and so forth. And a couple of decades previously, there was a similar discovery made in Spain in a place called Altamira, when there was this archaeologist. Archaeologists are our scientists who like to dig in the ground and find ancient things. So you had this Spanish man who went to dig in a cave 
And he brought along his, his eight-year-old uh, daughter, and he was digging in the cave and digging and looking for scraps of, of tiny things in, 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 in the ground. And she was bored, so she looked up, and she said, Look, Daddy, bulls. And there were amazing paintings of, of bulls and horses and ancient animals just over the whole ceiling and walls of the... He didn't see it because he was digging in, in, in the ground. And, and she saw it, and she made one of, again, one of the most important discoveries, of our, which completely changed our understanding. Because previously, people thought that, you know, these ancient humans, they were like, like I don't know, like monkeys, they couldn't do anything. And you look at this art, and it is as beautiful, as sophisticated as anything we can produce today. What do we, obviously, so much of this... We're having to imagine and guess from the best evidence we have. But how do you think that they were making those paintings? Especially, you talk in the book about, I imagine you can all picture them, some of those very beautiful handprints that we have mm -hmm. on walls, uh, which we think might have been made by women. How do you think they were making them? So with regard to the handprints, again, we have people with handprints for like 40,000 years ago. You can see the handprint, it's like, like the, self, the, the first selfies in history. And today we take a selfie with a smartphone. So 40,000 years ago, you have these people, they go to the cave or they go to a rock, and they place their handprint, and we can still see it today. And the way they did it, at least in most cases, they would crush some colorful rock and mix it with water to make paint, and then they would put it in their mouth or inside a, a, a tube, and they blow on the tube, and like you put your hand on the rock, and you blow on the tube, and it sprays, and, it, and then you remove your hand, and it leaves this shape of, of your hand, and people come 50,000 years later and find it, and this is kind of a window to get to know these ancient people. So just imagine that, you know, your selfie from today might be found in 50,000 years by somebody, Ah, I, now I understand something about how people <laughs> lived back then. Um, among other incredibly important inventions, one of the ones that had the most unexpected power was the invention of the needle. Yeah. How did that shift the entire way that humans are distributed across the world? Yeah, so people, you know, when we imagine the distant past, so people think about things like spears and bow and arrow, that we can hunt mammoths and big animals. But actually, maybe even more important than all these weapons and tools, it was the needle. Because what, what could you do with a needle? You can make warm clothing. One of the amazing things about humans like us, we came from Africa, which is a hot continent, uh, and we spread all over the world. England doesn't seem very cool these days, but it was very cold uh, back in the Stone Age. And they spread even to Siberia and managed to cross over to America through the Arctic, a place where in winter, temperatures go down to minus 50 degrees Celsius. Now, how does a human from Africa survive there? So you have their animals, like woolly mammoth, but they developed for millions of years with layers of fat and fur to survive in Siberia. How can somebody like me survive in Siberia? With clothing. And to make clothing, you need needles. I mean, Neanderthals also had clothes, but very crude things. Like a Neanderthal might hunt a bear or a deer and just take the skin of the deer or the, the fur of the bear and put it on, on, on himself, which is good, but not very, very good. <laughs> The sapiens, they knew how with needles and, 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 and fiber to sew together kind of thermal clothing. You take the skins and furs of different animals and you put them on top of each other and you sew them together and you create thermal clothing that an animal from Africa can put on and survive in minus 50 Celsius. Uh, and this is how they spread to... Without this, no other humans could reach America because no other humans knew how to make clothes. And our kind of humans, Homo sapiens, because of the needle, we managed to do that. 
And then, of course, we also invented rafts.、Mm. And that, again, changed a huge amount about the way the world looks now. Yeah,、uh, again, previously, when an animal wanted to go into the ocean, it had to wait millions of years for its body to change through evolution. So we have examples like whales originally were land creatures. If you go back 50 million years, you don't find whales. You find these small land animals that look like, a bit like dogs. And they are the ancestors of whales.、Uh, and they eventually went to live in the ocean, but it took them millions of years to change their body. Now, humans like us, we didn't change our body to start going to all kinds of islands and crossing the ocean to reach Australia. Instead, People invented rafts and boats. And this is how they managed to get to Australia, for instance, about again 50,000 years ago. And this was a huge, huge thing. Maybe the, the, the first big thing that humans did in our history, which really changed the world, was reaching Australia. Because once humans reached Australia, very quickly, almost all the big animals of Australia disappeared. Today, we know in Australia we have the kangaroo. And, you know, that's other small animals, but big animals, it's just the kangaroo. But if you go back 50,000 years, Australia is full of huge animals. And they all disappear when humans invent rafts and boats and cross the ocean and reach Australia and start hunting these animals and they disappear. And The biggest advantage perhaps that humans had, and this is why you know, the animals in Africa didn't disappear, not all of them, but those in Australia did, because the animals in Australia were not afraid of humans. You need to learn to be afraid. It sounds strange that you need to learn to be afraid, but you do. Like if you ask yourself today what people are afraid of, so lots of people are afraid of spiders. Like I, I don't like spiders. I, I was, as, as a kid, I was terrified of spiders. Uh, which is strange because spiders hardly kill anybody. Every year, you know, you have very few cases. In contrast, cars are extremely dangerous. But very few people are afraid of cars because we are not used to being afraid of cars. It takes, again, thousands of years, slow change to learn to be really afraid of something. So it was the same with the big animals of Australia. When these For the first time, they saw these apes coming, on, landing on the shore. The big animals of Australia look at them. They don't seem scary. Like, look at us. We are not scary. We aren't the, you know, big and muscular like chimpanzees. We don't have long teeth like tigers. We don't have sharp claws. We are not poisonous like snakes. We just don't look scary. And in fact, a single human being is not a very dangerous animal. What's really dangerous about humans is when you get a hundred of these apes running after you from all directions with bows and arrows, that's, that's the most dangerous thing in the world. And the big animals of Australia, they just didn't have the time to learn to be afraid of these strange new creatures, and almost all of them disappeared. I think that's, in fact, something maybe that should be something that we'll close on thinking about. Because, of course, we didn't know back then that what we were doing was causing extinction. Because, of course, people only lived 20 or 30 years, so they didn't have time to notice.、Yeah. As you say in the book, like some of the grandfathers might have been like, there used to be a lot more enormous sloths. <laughs> But like, it's unlikely that we knew. We are now causing extinctions, and we do know. Yeah. And one of the things I love is that at the end of the book, you start discussing what we can do.、Mm-hmm. This human superpower, which has led us to build so much and destroy so much, what do you think we can do now? Our superpower, and it belongs to everybody, is the ability to tell stories which bring people together and change the way that people behave. Now, again, as you said, 50,000 years ago, the humans that came to Australia. They had no intention of destroying all these big animals. They didn't know they were doing it. Every year, they would hunt a few of the big animals. Nobody lived long enough to realize that all of them are disappearing. 
Now we know what is happening around the world. We know that we are responsible for the disappearance of more and more animals. We are changing the, the very climate of, of, of the earth. We are putting our own existence also in danger. And it's in, uh, fundamentally, it's because the way we cooperate. And we can change how we behave. But to change how we behave, we need to tell different stories. And this is something that young people are fully capable of doing. Uh, you know, if you create a story and put it on Instagram or, or put it on, on Facebook, this is, this is powerful. Because, the, again, the, the biggest, the most powerful thing in the world today is not lions and it's not elephants, and it's not airplanes or whatever. It's the stories in people's minds. And uh, uh, young people, not only they are as capable as adults of creating and spreading new stories, they are far more open. You know, as a 50-year-old, it's very difficult to change the stories that you believed for all your life. Even if these stories are, are harmful or dangerous, it's difficult to change them and to think of something else. But 10-year-olds, for them it's much easier. So, you know, I think that the, the people who would really change the world are not those who are now 50 years old, it's the people who are 10 years old. Yeah. That's the thing, <laughs> that the people to change the story is going to have to be the young ones in this audience. We have time for about 10 minutes of questions. Uh, if anyone here, oh good, we have lots of hands already. Now we've got some roving mics. Yeah, yeah thank you. Girls and boys used to hunt together like in the Stone Age times. So when did they go separately and the boys go hunting <laughs> and they separate? Great question. Well, we don't know. We don't know how boys and girls were different in the Stone Age. The most likely thing is that it was different in different tribes, in different bands. Not all the people in the world, either in the past or today, believe in the same stories and behave in the same ways. So if even also when you go 50,000 years ago, maybe you have a tribe where people say boys and girls are very different, only boys can hunt, and girls should stay in the, at home and with their needles make clothing. And this is how they behaved there. And in another tribe, which was maybe just, you know, 100 kilometers away, they said, this is nonsense. If some girl wants to join the hunt, or if a boy likes to sew clothes with needles, wonderful. Let them do that. Um, so, and this is what characterizes humans as an animals that... We don't have this set way that everybody must behave in exactly the, 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 the same way. We have many, many more opportunities, many more possibilities. I'd like to ask, why did people understand the animal's skin could be so useful to keeping warm? Hmm. That, that, that's a good question. I haven't thought of that. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess they just tried. You know, uh, it, 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 you go somewhere up north and it's very cold, and maybe you, you hunt a deer, mainly for, 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 first of all, in order to eat. And you kind of cut the skin and throw it away because you can't eat it. But then it's very cold, and like you, you huddle together, and somebody has this idea maybe we put this, the, the, this deer skin on us, and you find out, hey, it keeps us warm. So you start doing it. And eventually, maybe you go hunt a deer, not so much for the food, but actually for, for the skin or for the fur. Or maybe you go again out in the snow and you're like freezing and shivering and you see this mammoth there and she's all happy. And you see this old, the, the, the fur she has and you think, I, if I had this fur, I also wouldn't be so cold. Um, so again, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, but this could be some of the ways that, that people came up with, with this idea. How does Vipassana help you write your books? Hmm. You know, Vipassana is, is a practice of meditation, which you basically 
Um, you just sit with closed eyes for a couple of minutes or maybe a few hours, and you don't watch your smartphone and you don't look in television and you don't talk to people. Uh, and it helps me because, you know, we are flooded with so much information, with so many news and stories and tweets and, what, and, and, and photos that we don't have time to just stop and think to just uh, 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 have a moment of, 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 of silence. And I think, as humans, it's extremely important for us. Stories are very important. But silence is equally important, because this is the time that we can really observe things deeply and uh, uh, see whether we want to follow a certain story Oh, reject it? No, I, I don't, this story is not good. I don't want it. And um, I think it's a good idea. You don't have to do this particular thing or that particular thing. But especially today, you know, when we are constantly bombarded with more and more information, it's, I think it's crucial for every human to take some time off just to disconnect for an hour, for a day, just being silence, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, so, you know, you were talking about all those stories. Do you think God is a fairy tale? <laughs> <laughs> different people understand by the, world, by the word God completely different things. Some people imagine that God is an old, angry man in the sky with a big beard that constantly watches us. And if we do something that he doesn't like, he punishes us. And I think this is a fairy tale. This is the kind of thing that people think about themselves. Other people understand by the, world, by the word God, they use it to refer to something like love. That, you know, the, the potential for love, that people say that God is everywhere, and they mean that there is a potential for love in everything, in everybody, everywhere. And this kind of God... I think, yes, this, this really exists. There is a potential for love everywhere. So you need to... And I personally, I tend not to use this word because it's taken. You know, again, this goes back to the stories. When you tell a lot of stories using a particular word, then the word is taken. And if you use the word in a different way, people don't understand. So again, from my experience, too many people in the world they don't understand God to mean love. They understand God to mean an angry man in the sky that hates all kinds of people and is angry about all kinds of things. And I don't believe in that kind of God, so I don't use the word. How is COVID-19 different to any other pandemic? Hmm. It's different because it's the first time that we actually have the power to stop it. For most of history, when a big disease came, people were completely helpless. They didn't understand what was happening, and they didn't know how to stop it. Now, we do understand. We do know what viruses are. We do know how to develop medicines and vaccines and so forth. So this is very different. It doesn't mean that we do the right thing. It's not enough to uh, uh, have tools in order to prevent a disease, we also need to make the right decisions about how to use these tools. And unfortunately, people don't always make uh, uh, the best decisions. But I think that's the crucial thing. If we make the right decisions, it's, it's amazing to think about it. It seems, I don't know, far-fetched. But actually, COVID could be the last epidemic in human history. We now have this, this kind of power. It doesn't seem that we are doing it because, you know, you have a pandemic and instead of people coming together, they have more wars. So going like that, we'll have even more pandemics. But we have the chance, if we make the right decisions, this could be the last epidemic in history. You see on the news that like, people are talking about creating new AIs, mm -hmm. but um, what do you think about how they'll play a part in the help for ch climate ch change? Hmm. And AI is, is a tool, and like with every tool, the question is how to use it wisely. You know, it's, you have a knife. You can use a knife 
to kill somebody. You can use a knife to save their life in surgery, and you can use a knife to cut salad for dinner. The knife doesn't tell you what to do with it. So, in a way, AI is a bit similar. We can use it to, to, for terrible things, and we can use it also for good things, like to be able to prevent climate change by having more efficient energy systems and, and things like that. The one thing which is really different, though, about AI, it's the first tool in history that can make decisions by itself. The knife can't decide how to use it. But the interesting and scary thing about AI that it is something that can actually make decisions. And this makes it very dangerous and very, very important that people, before it's too late, make the right decisions how to use it, how we should use AI to help us instead of AI uh, enslaving us and controlling us. This is the, one of the most important things today in the world. And our final question will be this young woman at the front. Thank you. Has medical advancement made things better or worse for the planet by us living for so long? Hmm. Generally speaking, it, it made things better for us humans. That's without a question. You know, if you go back just a century, just a hundred years, about a third of children did not reach the age of 20. A hundred years ago, all over the world, a third of the children who were born died before they reached the age of 20 because of infectious diseases, because of malnutrition, things like that. This was, and this was for most of history. So, like, if you have a family and you have, like, three brothers or sisters, there is a very good chance that one of you will not will die before 20, and this was terrible for everybody. Uh, and because of medical advances, because of better hygiene, because of vaccinations, because of antibiotics, this is no longer the case. Around the entire world today, even in the, in the poorest country, out of every 100 kids born, 95 would reach the age of 20. In developed countries with developed medical systems, like in Britain, it's 99 kids out of every 100 would reach to be 20, which is a wonderful thing, obviously, for the kids themselves, for their brothers and sisters, for their friends, for their parents. Uh, but two important things. First of all, we need to make this available for all the humans on the planet not just for the humans in, in rich countries like Britain. And the second thing is, it shouldn't come at the expense of, of the other animals. That uh, we make a better and better life for us, and a worse and worse life for all the other animals in the world. Because other animals, they can also suffer. They, can also, they also feel pain, they also feel fear, they also love their, their young ones. You know, cows love their small calves. You know, the word kids that we use for human children, actually, originally, kids mean the young of the goat. There is the goat mother, and her offspring are called kids. And farmers, 10,000 years ago, when they started raising goats, they, used, they started nicknaming their own young, you're also kids. And kids, the original kids, the young of God, they also, they, they are afraid if they are separated from their mother. Their mother is very, very sad if they take away their kid or do something bad to it. And uh, we should care about all the other humans in the world. But I also think that, you know, going back to the beginning of, of, of our discussion, we are animals. And talking about this kind of potential for universal love, which some people call God, so it includes the other animals. And we should also love them. They also love one another. So I hope that we learn with the enormous power that now humans have to take care not just of all the humans in the world, but also to take care of all the kids in the world and of all the other animals out there that, that, that uh, uh, we are responsible for. Thank you so much. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Yuval Noah Harari.
The only thing to say is that this book is wonderful, and even though it's not actually out yet, it can be pre-ordered from all good bookshops, including the Primrose Hill Bookshop, which is out at the front. You've been the most wonderful audience. Thank you all so much for coming. Goodbye. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Yuval Noah Harari and was presented by Catherine Rundell. The producers were Sam Algranti and Luke Naylor Perrett, and the series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show this week, please do rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>